Hi, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today I'm talking to Jeff and Angie Sundell about the early days of pioneering movements in South Asia. When we sort of wrestled through the God was calling us out of business and um, of course we didn't really know what to do so we went to seminary and um, so when we had a, a Dr. Idle was one of the professors there and he was telling us these stories from all around the world but in, in particular you know, places like Cambodia and China and India of these stories of these spontaneous um, church planting movements and then he's also having us dig into people like Roland Allen and um, along that line and master plan of evangelism master plan of discipleship so we're, you're not only you know, reading some of this but you're hearing stories um, through the grapevine and then Dr. Otto was an incredible actually storyteller of just telling what God was doing so he'd literally be sitting in a class getting excited about something you really had no idea what it was and it, it took several years for us to sort of really figure out that God was calling us overseas. We really planned to go to the Stans, and um, we didn't have our hours done, and so God ended up jettisoning us into South Asia. And um, right before we left, we, we actually met um, David Watson. Mm. And um, so we, we got to sit down with him and hear some stories, and the place we were going to actually move to, um, he was telling stories of the political upheavals and all this stuff, and um, I remember one of our professors saying, oh, he's, he's just, it's, it's sensational. It's not like that. Um, now, I will say, though, once we lived there, it actually was exactly what David yeah. described. So it was, um, it was uh, more so radical as far as the wild political things. But um, so I think that was sort of the first inklings of just really excited about it, but no idea what it really looked like. And then... Um, so what was going on for you at that time, Angie? Well... I, God had to bring me to the point um, where I realized he was sovereign mm-hmm. worldwide. Because yeah. I felt like he was only sovereign in America. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we had small kids at the time. So um, my vision of moving to especially a third world area mm-hmm. or even, you know, a second world developing area was there's going to be disease, Mm. you know, our kids can get sick and possibly die over there. And so um, God had to bring me to the point where I said, okay, I trust you. Um, Wherever you lead us, whenever you lead us, you know, I've just got to trust you that you're going to take care of us, especially the children. So... And we even actually had a relative say, are you taking the kids with you? And we're like, uh, of course, yeah, we're taking the kids with us. And, you know, one of the conversations we had with Angie's mom and dad, my mom and dad, was if we really believe what we believe about Jesus Christ, that um, actually eternity is actually a greater place than what we are in right now. Why do we live like this is the greatest place, but yet eternity is second rate? So why don't we forfeit here 
some time together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll go overseas, but the realization is we have eternity together because we're a family in Christ. And then the realization there is that, hey, you're going to not see the messed up sinner Jeff, you know, here right now maybe, or the kids, but someday in eternity we'll walk together and you'll see the perfected glorified because of Christ's perfect work. And so that was one of those um, things we wrestled through with family. And um, it, it's a it's a it's something you know you can say, but when you really you know you're banking on that this is actually this is worth doing because what's in the future is actually the greater days are ahead. You know, and uh, that was a tough conversation, but um, we really wanted to put our trust and belief that that was true and is true. So, what was it like when you? You first settled in in South Asia as a family. Sickness. <laughs> moved For Jeff, a seven lot, times. Mm-hmm. Um, more classroom, which was a bit of a shock, you know. So we were just come out of three years of seminary and then went right back into a classroom. So, the, but the language. Uh, well, language and more um, strategy coordinator training. Okay. But that's where I met Bruce Carlton. So Bruce is now telling firsthand stories from mm. uh, Cambodia and what God was doing there. And then he's also bringing in, like, uh, Brother Kika's coming in and telling stories of what's happening in um, our city there, where there's multiplication occurring. And so now it's no longer we're hearing stories. We're actually meeting guys that are having stories. And, um, you know, whether it's Cambodia or whether it's this brother right there experiencing it just right down the street from us, you know. So it was really... Um, just just whetted your appetite, but yet also the realization that every one and a half seconds somebody's going into eternity in this place, never hearing the name of Jesus, was this um, this challenge before you. Because one of the things Bruce had us do was put um, on our, more or less our mirror in our bathroom, if I'm doing anything else today, how will my people hear the gospel today? And so that, that sat on the mirror for years and, and would haunt you when um, you were making decisions about what you're doing. Because um, if, if I'm not training, equipping, gospeling, something about the business, my people are perishing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to the point of, you know, there's a bit of a Moses syndrome that you have to have because you love your people that you want them to hear, you know. And I think that was... Um, Probably one of the earliest things I remember is just that that shift um, in the midst of sickness and losing 20 pounds and moving and felt like we'd get to see Jesus someday. And Jesus said, well done, my good and faithful servants. What have you done? I've sat on a throne and been sick and I've moved seven times. So I'm an expert packer, but that's all I have to bring to you, Jesus. That's sort of what it felt like the first two years. So, so that was sort of Jeff's world. Mm. My world was trying to figure out how am I going to cook and feed my family in this foreign place, you know. French fries. Grocery stores are different. Yeah, our first apartment had been set up for us and um, with the company. And so we walk into the kitchen and there's just like um, a set of stove burners, you know, on the counter in a refrigerator and I had brought some recipes with me but did not realize 
how much stuff we fix in the States that requires an oven, of which I did not have. So, and I had, um, I had inherited a housekeeper who was also a cook who did not speak English and only knew how to fix Indian food, which my kids were not a fan of initially. And so Babies. it was um, it was very trying to try and communicate, to try and figure out a schedule of life or even a schedule for food, for meals. You know, what is there out there to fix? What are we going to eat? So, yeah, we ate a lot of French fries because you can fry those on a stove. You don't necessarily have to have an oven, but anyway. But I think um, just being in community, though, with some other expats really helped as far as Okay, what do you guys eat? <laughs> how how do you cook this? How, and all this kind of stuff. And we did end up buying an oven. You know, a little glorified toaster oven sort of thing. But, but it's definitely a learning curve. I wasn't ready for the house side of it. Um, I guess I really wasn't prepared for that. Because while Jeff was doing all this ministry stuff, I was left with three kids and I didn't know how to feed them or how to take care of them here in this new area. But anyway, but you do, you know, you were start you home, to talk to people. Homeschooling at that stage or were they too young? They were too young mm. um, at that point. Mm. So, I mean, Caleb was like, um, I had taken him through some kindergarten stuff. Mm. So it was, you know, just a little bit, not a major amount. But just getting out of the house, say, with the three kids and finding a place yeah. you felt comfortable with just to take them out, that would have been hard, I would imagine. It, yeah, it was really hard. And especially having three little blonde-headed children, everyone wanted to pinch their cheeks or touch their hair or something. And they were, you know, in culture shock, too. So you're trying to protect them. and But yet you can't stay inside the whole time because it's not really why you're there. And then Miriam would be up on a little like papoose on the back of Angie's back, and we'd she'd be out in the market, the vegetable market, mm-hmm. and you're you're buying stuff. Well, you you get back home, and well, somebody in the vegetable markets handed Miriam a dirty carrot, and she's eating half of it, you know, and it's covered in dirt and mess, and you know, and she's just happy as can be, and you're going, oh my goodness, what what kind of What's going to happen, you know? And, but the yeah. kids were actually very resilient in comparison to us when it came to stuff like that, yeah. you know? So yeah. they didn't know the difference. So yeah. riding five of us on a motorcycle, they just thought, you know, every kid rides five on, on a motorcycle, you know, and rides in a little backpack up in the back of a motorcycle. That this in is traffic, just normal. too. This is not out on some country road. No, this is in a major city riding a motorcycle with five people. Yeah. And, um, True. So the kids... Kids loved it, thought it was normal. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also hard to go from, and in America we're very individualistic and very, mm. you know, this is our area, this is our house sort of thing, and um, our little kingdom, so to speak. And you can come into it if I invite you into it, you know, and all that. But there, your house, I mean, we had kids in the apartment complex that would just stop over at all times of day and stay forever and then you've got this house helper who's there at all hours of the day and so it was just 
It was a lot of culture shock just right there in your face immediately. But you're there because you feel like I've, I've got to be a good witness. Mm. But yet I am going insane at the same time. So how do I still be nice and mm. be this, you know, be Jesus to them, but yet say, please get out of my house. I can't handle all this. So there's a lot of growing and I think just dying to self mm-hmm. is just such um, a constant theme I think just all the way through there's just little things that you just have to let go and die to mm-hmm. them. so what was God doing in you during that when you look back what, what was going on in terms of how he was shaping you well it was definitely humbling me because um, I came over and thought I had all my women's Bible study books and I was like, hey, I'm going to teach these women the Bible, you know, they're going to go deep and just see all the treasures in it. And I got over here and it was like, I can't even talk to these people. How am I going to teach them the Bible? And so just, I don't know, just having a lot of pride and knowledge of the Bible but just having to humble myself and, um, one, learn how to communicate with them, but also learn where they are because um, they need milk and not meat, you know. And just, um, and that's why I think, you know, teaching the commands is so great as far as it just gives them enough to obey and you just build upon that. Um and just realizing I have so much to learn from them, um, not only from a ministry standpoint, but even just from a life standpoint, um, that I'm not the know-it-all American, you know, who knows best for everybody. But um, so definitely a humbling experience. That God's given them knowledge and wisdom that I do not did not know and still can't fathom and just adopting a learning attitude through it all. What was going on for you, Jeff, as you were in these early days? Um, I think, like Angie, learning a lot from national brothers and sisters. I remember we were was hiking up the mountains one day uh, to an area we were going to go share the gospel, and it was a three- or four-day walk, and we're, you know, some, we're sleeping up in a roof of a barn, um, and I remember waking up in a... a chicken hit me in the chest, you know, lands on me, and I'm like, what the heck, and I look over, and here's my brother, and he's sitting cross-legged, praying, and um, and he'd get up every morning and just spend hours. He was in, a national brother. Yeah, a national yeah. brother, and he'd spend hours in prayer, and he'd do that every single day, and and I can just remember that everywhere I went was just such a norm mm. of, remember being in a training in one area, and probably in a room with, you know... 30 other men and there's another room over there and you know it's 4.30 in the morning and all of a sudden you hear these guys praying and singing and you're like man shut up it's, <laughs> it's dark outside you know and like you know and you, you lay there for an hour trying to sleep through it and then you finally get up and try and figure out what the heck are they doing you know and, and so just to learn a lot about their just sort of abiding and um, their their prayer life and their Worship and just that you know they, they didn't have a lot, so they, they they just went to Jesus 
for the needs, and they would pray immediately. And um, you know, and I think that was a, a huge thing. And I think you know one of the real big shifts for me personally was I went through nine months of strategy coordinator training and really didn't get it. And then um, my buddy Bruce had met a guy named Chris Stocks, actually from Australia, mm-hmm. and he had redesigned his training around adult learning styles. And I'm slow, so I need to, you, you, but you hit me with, you know, with adult learning styles, I'm a little more likely to learn because I'm hands-on. So I went back through this very same training, but in about a two-week period using adult learning styles. And it's like, and this is probably two years later after we've attempted to plant our first church and we've got three ladies up in the mountains and it's a mess. And then we got this other guy who's come to Christ and first believer from his people group and he's a mess. And, and so you've tried all this stuff mm. and now you're hearing the same thing you heard from again, but you're back through the word of God. And he called it Acts 29, originally Nehemiah, mm. Nehemiah, then Acts 29. And it just, that time it clicked in my heart and mm-hmm. and being with the, and the interesting thing is that time I'm in a room with other men who are either are multiplying or attempting to multiply mm-hmm. but they're all national brothers mm-hmm. and that that really um, it, it was just amazing the power of the word of God um, and I guess that just we just spent two weeks in the word of God looking through just mm-hmm. through the word and stuff just came together you know in Acts 29 what Bruce taught us really became was the beta of what became four fields mm-hmm. that Nathan mm-hmm. wrote, because a lot of that same stuff yeah. is exactly what's there. We got more directive with four fields, and then Nathan mm-hmm. Jared made it way better than anything I did. But that that moment just really was a big shift. And then I think the other thing is Bruce, um, he he would just be big on imitate Jesus, and so I said, okay, brother, can I come with you? I want to go train with you. I want to learn from you. And so I, me and a guy named Paul um, Poe just begged him if we could go with him. So he started taking us places, and we were getting to go with some of these other guys who were beginning to see multiplication. And it really wasn't so much the training as it was mm-hmm. the evening sitting around with Bruce and um, uh, one brother, uh, Albert, who actually went to be with the Lord this year, and, and listening to these guys. And, and I, you learned a lot more just mm-hmm. sitting around drinking coffee, eating jam treats, and um, just from their faith and their experiences. Uh, Albert had spent some time in prison uh, for the gospel. So it was just, it was just amazing when, when really Bruce took us two by two and modeled for us. Yeah. And it was just a huge breakthrough personally in my heart because we'd spent all this time failing forward and then just to really just it just resonated in my heart plus just to man just to stand on the word was freeing in in a way because I think it was the other big piece that really happened probably about 2002 for me was just that release and I love to read books I read six seven books a week and I love to read and but the standing on the word being consumed by the word really sort of came out of that time that Bruce you know gave me in a, in a just a new way to literally just say, man, let's attempt to imitate Jesus the best we can. And I know he's the son of God and he's unimitatable in many ways, but there's much that he, I think he desires for us yeah. to imitate and obey. And so anyway, it was just an incredible shift in, in, I know, my life experience right then. And just put How it in How long have you been in country before that? Uh, probably almost two years mm-hmm. at that point in time. 
you know. Do you think you could have had that same shift at the beginning if you'd hung out with Bruce, or did you need that two years of... I think I needed that two years of failing to go up and, you know, walk 10 days up to share the gospel and Mm -hmm. go up many trips. And, you know, you spend literally a whole year and nobody comes to faith. And then then you see one come to faith Mm. and then you see three come to faith, you know, and I'm I'm learning to depend on my national brothers like Ramesh and Eidemann. And it just was... um, yeah, I think it just made you. Plus, you had some. You, now you've been out in there going, "How do you train these illiterates, and how do you help them understand what church is when you're up in this village that's illiterate? They don't have the Bible in their language. Yeah. They don't have stories in their language. I don't know their language. I know one of the trade languages, you know, and so, um, and I barely even know any of it, you know, at that point in time, you know. So it, it really, I think, it was in the midst of failing forward for those two years, just created um, yeah, much more teachableness for myself. What was the next uh, sort of stage life? What were the life, what were the lessons, what were the challenges? I think, um, I mean, some of it, there's one side of, you know, like taking those trainings and things that Bruce had taught us, you know, like in Nehemiah, obstacles are God's greatest opportunity to work mm-hmm. and how fasting and prayer starts to become a key part of our lives but I think the other thing was you know when the king and queen and the whole royal family were slaughtered um, you're going through a civil war you know and there's times where you might hear you know machine gun fire you're hearing stories of you know the encroachment of you know the people coming into the thing near the village or the area you're working at or, or even those moments where we had a, a small bomb go off near the kids and I don't think they were trying to hurt anybody they actually yelled and the the guy setting the bomb off yelled at everybody and chased them away and it was a diversion so they could blow somebody else up but um, still I think those things were at that time I think the big thing for me was as I was getting to know my national brothers and I'm traveling 90 to 120 days a year I'm learning to depend on my my brothers so I'm literally leaving there's a guy named Abraham, just a just a dear friend, and um, some we're, we have bags packed with passports in them. You know, that's the way you lived in in that time. Just so in case you had to go, you could go, and you had emergency routes out and stuff. But you know, learning to trust Abraham with my family, yeah, and and I and I got to where you know that was just an incredible comfort for me. And uh, you know, and, and I think at the same time, in the midst of that, as you're looking in the Word. And I'm, I'm seeing, I remember just one day looking at, you know, we're looking through Paul's journeys and I'm looking through the epistles and just seeing how much he used that word encouragement and love and how much he loves his disciples. And I thought, you know, I don't know that I've ever experienced that mm-hmm. in America. And I want to experience that. I want to live that out. I want to mm-hmm. feel what that feels like when I'm looking at Paul's life. And, and I think that was one of those places mm. with a guy like Abraham and other brothers to, you know, you, you, you love this brother and, he, and you're literally entrusting your family mm. um, while you're gone. Now, a lot of times I, I came back one time that shut the borders down and shut the phones down, shut the airport down. And I'm all in a huff and um, concerned. Mm. And so we come flying back and, you know, rushing in the house. All right, baby, we're going. We're leaving. Get the kids. We're going to Thailand. We're out of here. And, you know, because I've, I've been locked out for three or four days. And, well, she's been in the kettle cooking. 
And um, so I come home and I'm all fired up, ready to leave. And she's like, what are you talking about? Can you fix the daggone plumbing? Why don't you get somebody over here to fix the water? We're fine, you know. So here we were outside the country fretting and concerned, and yeah. I come home, and they, they don't even know anything's wrong. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Abraham and, you know, an other expat community, you know, you learn to depend on others mm-hmm. in that sense of community. It was an incredible community there of nationals and other brothers that you were, you know, working with. That was um, really, that was a big... It's very different than what I experienced growing up yeah. in church. Yeah. And how about for you, Andy? What was that period like for you? Um, well, you know, it's interesting to look back and some of this unrest that we lived through because I never really had any fear mm-hmm. for the kids mm-hmm. or me or, you know, Jeff while he was out traveling or whatever. Um, I mean, definitely you prayed for protection, but there was never fear of, you know, we're going to lose our life or we're not going to get out of the country or whatever. What's God doing in the lives of the kids during this time in um, overseas? Yeah. Well, um, some things you don't realize until you're back mm-hmm. in your home country. Um, but through the, I mean, they, you know, they went to school with many, many different nationalities and, um, they are just not racist. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just don't see ethnicity or color or anything, mm-hmm. which is great. You know, um, they just see people as people. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no baggage or anything attached to that. Um, I think also they, um, they were involved some with us in training um, you know, as they got a little bit older or whatever, um, they could help us in trainings. But also just having a church that met in our home where they could ask questions or they could be involved in picking songs or um, reading the passage or asking the questions or whatever. Um, they have just, they just really grew up just understanding what it meant to be obedient to the Bible, not just you read the Bible. Mm. It's a good book, but it's something to be obeyed. It's something to, to live by. Um, and I think that, that they saw that as a huge contrast whenever they did, when we did go back to the States, um, that the Christian life wasn't as vibrant, I guess, as it was overseas when you're in a community that's just really trying to obey and reach out and multiply. The result of that now is just that, um, well, especially the girls want to go back overseas. You know, they've already dedicated their lives to see this, or, you know, continue um, to multiply and stuff. Um yeah. Yeah, I think the other thing we saw with the kids was just it's interesting when you're in a small church that meets in a home and your kids are active, you know, you're taking them out training or they get to go gospeling when they're free and um, or they're seeing it model or they're hearing stories of, you know, we have nationals in the church also. 
Um, I remember Miriam out one night, and she might have been eight, seven, I don't know. And she's with a, a young lady who works for us, um, actually helping with some translation stuff, and then also helps around the house. And um, so, anyhow, Miriam's out there um, preaching the gospel to her. You know, now Miriam knows some Nepali. This girl knows no English or a little bit of English, but Miriam's, you know, going, your God has eyes and he can't see and has ears and he can't hear and his hands, he cannot help you. And, you know, so anyhow, they're having this conversation. So it was just so funny because you saw this little prophet in Miriam of going to preach the gospel. And it's just been, you saw it real early on in the church and you would, you would go and look at it the same way. And then you, you see Abigail with this sense of, you know, discernment. You see it coming early on and her ability to discern and just be steady and focused. And, you know, and she's funny. We always joke she had a biblical cord hooked to Angie to till probably the day she was married. Um, you know, but she was the one who, man, got out of high school and goes to South Africa, mm. um, you know, and shy. And, you know, and here she is bold going out, mm. you know, and doing that. And, um, Remember, Caleb had a you know vision that uh, his generation would be the generation that would finish finish preaching the gospel um, to all the nations, you know. And so it's just neat how all that was just um, bubbled up in their hearts, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and you just you're hoping that's their legacy, and hoping that's for your children's children and children's yeah. children, and. You know, and that's that's your great hope. When you really think about where no place left starts in all of our hearts, it really starts with our children, that our children would multiply, not just physically, but spiritually through their children. And, you know, that's really in your heart of hearts where the whole heart of no place left has to begin is is right there. And that's what you, you know, desperately seek in no place left. And I, I think that's what becomes the outflow of the ends of the earth of no place left. So, what are you most thankful for when you look back at that whole era of life and ministry? In some ways, thankful for the the sufferings and difficulties, because I think they've, um, one, they help you take next steps of whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're doing, and gave us more, you know, sense of opportunities to minister. But I think in the midst of that, it's created a, I have such a high value for relationships now that I don't mm-hmm. think I really understood that, um, you know, early on, just how important, you know, that is. And I think that even just lately, you know, it just sort of just keeps bubbling back up is, you know, movements in one sense are all about relationships. It's a network of relationships. It's not a network of methodology. Mm-hmm. It's a network of one anothering people in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and you know and, and part you know that that partaking of the word and the, the giving away of the word and giving away of your life you know early on it may look like there's you know some methods piece in that but it's really it's all about relationship and when you get into the you know the leadership side of when you're investing in people's lives or other people are investing in you they're 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 imparting something in you and so um you know, it's interesting. We we call it the the one another in hammer. Mm-hmm. Angie's been teaching us around no place left in the U.S. But just the, you know, I really think the glue. When you think of the five levels of leadership, you think about multiplication. You think about churches, planting churches, whatever you want to say. 
the, the piece that holds it all together is it's it's not even really leadership. Leadership's important, um, but it's the one anothering through leadership, discipling the that that love for one another is a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ is true according mm-hmm. to Christ, and and yet a you know. We live in a world that loves to just beat one another up, blogging and saying negative things or whatever. And then, but but the reality is, the truth to a world that's dying and headed to hell is our demonstration of love towards one another and towards them is um, evidence of the gospel. And um, so I, I don't I don't think I would have. Ex- Experienced that for not going to Asia, but I also didn't think I would have experienced it. Coming, experiencing it in my own culture, has been extremely rewarding. You know, because mm-hmm. um, I know that there was just a lot of financial sacrifices over the years to do that in the last eight years, and a lot of financial difficulties. But the the value, you know, of, of relationships, you know, there's just amazing, amazing people. Uh, in no place left and other places but just incredible experience of um, godly men and women of God that are attempting to I think that's the the one thing about missionaries quote unquote is um, missionaries often attempt to do something that they really they're just in one sense are an overachiever in the faith realm because they really we're not that sharp and we're you know and just that that sense of Man, God uses you, you know, I was country way of saying God hits straight licks with crooked sticks. And and there's a there's just a value when God honors that heart and and that, that loving one another. So through this whole thing though, um I mean I have not only taken care of the kids in the home prep, but Jeff has also allowed me to Train and to get up into the mountains where people group was and all that kind of stuff. And he would stay home with the kids, and I would go out for seven, 10, 14 days or whatever, um, which was very valuable to me because it helped me to live out the Great Commission, you know, as well. But I would say through this whole thing, um, whether overseas or even in the States, is I think the role of the woman to um, to pray for her husband um, not only protection but um, wisdom insight um, direction that we might not be on the forefront of whatever's happening, mm. but we um, undergird him yeah. in what is happening, and I think that that is um, just as valuable mm. a role as the husband or the man may have at the forefront mm. is if you don't have that backing, um, it may fall mm. through. So. But just encourage the women that that's probably the mightiest thing that they can do is to pray for their husband and especially wisdom um, because as a, as attacks have come and you just you know 
Jeff is frustrated, I'm frustrated, and you just don't know what to do, but just that God would just give him wisdom because I know I can't talk to these people or I'm going to, I will sin if I, you know, go out there, but praying that Jeff would just have the wisdom to combat whatever is coming or to be that peacemaker or, you know, to, to set someone straight in a loving way, in a biblical way. But just, you know, praying that God would use him through that. 